Now we have a look ahead to October term 2017. Uh, I'm Ilya Shapiro, editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Uh, here to kick it off, uh, so far the court has 31 cases on its docket, which is fewer than any other term at this point except last year. Here are some of the issues, partisan gerrymandering, the travel ban executive order, whether bakers can be forced to make wedding cakes for same-sex couples, warrantless searches of cell phone location data, and sports gambling in New Jersey. There's something for everyone, really, and that's before the court takes up again the question of compelled agency fees assessed against union non-members in the public sector, the previous iteration of which fizzled when Justice Scalia died, and structural challenges to the Consumer Finance Protection Board and the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. The authors of uh, the Supreme Court Review's Looking Ahead essay Chris Landau and Sopan Joshi conclude thus, quote, these are unconventional times and the Supreme Court may be headed for an unconventional term. To discuss the term, uh, we have, in addition to Chris Landau, Neil Katchel and Nina Totenberg. I'll introduce them briefly now and then um, we'll go into it. Their bios are in your materials. Uh, first up will be Neil Katchel, who's a partner at Hogan Lovells and former acting Solicitor General of the United States. Neil has argued 34 cases before the Supreme Court. Last term alone, he argued six times, more than any other advocate. And with his first argument next month, he will pass Thurgood Marshall to be the minority attorney who has argued the most Supreme Court cases. Neil is perhaps best known for winning the landmark decision Hamdan versus Rumsfeld, which challenged President Bush's policy of military trials at Guantanamo. The Chief Justice has twice appointed him to the Advisory Committee on Federal Appellate Rules. Neil has also been a law professor for nearly two decades at Georgetown University Law Center. Next up will be Nina Totenberg, NPR's legal affairs correspondent. Her reports air regularly on All Things Considered, Morning Edition and Weekend Edition. I'm sure we've all had our NPR moments. <laughs> well, I was going to read a whole bunch of stuff about the actual uh, credentials, but uh, um, uh, one of the things that, that she did was, uh, you know, among the coverage of Supreme Court nominations, she broke the story of uh, Judge Douglas Ginsburg's use of marijuana uh, and also uh, led the groundbreaking report about Anita Hill's allegations. So I guess if any future nominees have skeletons in their closet, uh, Nina will find them. Uh, uh, before joining NPR, she served as Washington editor of New Times Magazine and legal affairs correspondent for National Observer, and she is not a lawyer, to her credit. Uh, and finally, uh, Chris Landau is a senior partner at Kirkland & Ellis and was one of the founders of the firm's appellate litigation shop 25 years ago. He's argued appeals in a range of legal areas and courts across the country, including the Supreme Court, every federal court of appeals, and many state appellate uh, courts. He served twice as a law clerk at the Supreme Court, first to Justice Scalia and then to Justice Thomas. And this year, the Chief Justice appointed Chris to a three-year term as a member of the Judicial Conference Advisory Committee on Appellate Rules. All right. But you didn't come to hear me talk about them. You came to hear them talk about the court. So, Neil, why don't you kick us off? Thank you for having me, Ilya. It's a great delight to be here with all of you. Um, before, I, I know it was billed as we we're trying to talk about the term that's coming. Um, just before that, I want to give you a few data points about the term we just had, because I think it'll frame up some of the discussion. Obviously, you know, it was a court in transition. Up until the April sitting, there were only eight justices sitting. The term began by people thinking that Merrick Garland would be on the Supreme Court at some point, and the term ended in April, of course, with Justice Gorsuch being confirmed 
confirmed and sitting for all 16 of those cases in April. And so some of the stats can be skewed by the fact that you effectively had two different courts. And you also had, you know, frankly, a lot of cases that weren't um, the, the most hot-button cases, whereas this year, as you'll see from the cases we're going to discuss, boy, it's, it's shaped up to be um, quite a term. So, you know, they decided 62 cases last term, um, and they affirmed in only 22% of them, which is pretty standard for the court. So basically, that means if you're won your case in the Court of Appeals and cert is granted, you got a four in five chance, basically, of losing in the Supreme Court. Um, and that's, you know, been the general trend line of the Roberts Court um, over the last uh, many years. Um, they did decide a lot of cases unanimously. Actually, 59% of the cases decided unanimously. Um, now, some will attribute that to a 4-4 split on the court or something, but I do actually think there's something more deep going on. I think the Chief Justice in particular, Justice Breyer, some others, really do want the court to try and come together and speak unanimously when they can. Three terms ago, their unanimity rate was 66%, which is you have to go back to the year 1940 to find a similar year in which you had that high rate of unanimity amongst the court. So I do think there is something to that. But now I'm going to tell you um, some stuff that suggests that the court is in some conflict. So for one thing, Justice Gorsuch, as I say, sat on 16 cases. Uh, he voted with Justice Thomas 100% of the time and with Justice Alito 94% of the time. By contrast, if you look to the lineup between him and Justice Sotomayor, for example, they only agreed 59% of the time. If you looked, if you took Justice Gorsuch out and just asked who last year was voting with whom. Uh, Justices Ginsburg and Sotomayor agreed the most 93% of the time, along with Justices Breyer and Kagan at 93% of the time, and then followed by Justices Thomas and Alito at 91%. And if you ask the flip side of that, who's disagreeing the most with each other? Justices Thomas and Ginsburg agreeing only 65% of the time, and then Justices Thomas and Sotomayor agreeing only 68% of the time. A couple other just data points before talking about this term. Um, one is Justice Kennedy was the most frequent, the justice most frequently in the majority, 98% of the time. Um, and that's been true for a number of years. There was one year in which Justice Breyer was actually the justice in the majority the most. I think that was about three years ago. But for otherwise, it has been truly, uh, you know, as Justice Kennedy goes, generally so has the court. Um, in terms of opinion authorship, um, you know, sometimes you hear people, you know, in settings like this, you know, say, oh, Justice Thomas doesn't ask any questions. He must not be that engaged. Um, really, the data does not bear that out whatsoever. And in fact, last term, he wrote 31 opinions, far more than any other justice. The, the only person who's ever come close is Justice Thomas two terms ago, who wrote 39 separate opinions. Um, by contrast, Justice Kagan last year wrote the fewest opinions. She wrote eight opinions last year. And so you do see, I think, a pretty different uh, kind of way of thinking about um, separate writing between those two justices and the polar uh, uh, extremes. Um, in terms of which circuits are getting reversed the most, I won't surprise any of you in this room that the Ninth Circuit has, again, had a rough year. They had eight cases. They lost seven of them, reversal in seven. Now, remember what I said about statistically, you know, four out of five are getting reversed anyway. So, you know, that's bad, but it's not, you know, necessarily much worse than others. I mean, if you look at the federal circuit, for example, they had seven cases and six of them were reversed. So, um, you know, that was the next uh, worst performing uh, circuit in terms of 
reversal rates. Last thing I'll talk about is just um, who's arguing and just one interesting thing. Um, you know, I think some of us for years have been focused on the lack of women arguing at the Supreme Court. Um, and last year we did, I think, set, I think what is likely to be a record, but it's not a record that I think, you know, is an astounding number, but 21% of the arguments last year were by women. Um, if you took out the Solicitor General's office, which accounts for a large number of those arguments, that number drops quite a bit. And I expect it to drop this year as a number of women come out of the Solicitor General's office um, and, uh, and then join the ranks of private practice. We'll eventually get better, but, um, but we're not there yet. Um, you know, the first argument of the term uh, last year did feature an argument in which it had two women, Lisa Blatt um, and Elizabeth Perloger, arguing against each other. And when you took that in conjunction with the fact that there were the three women justices, there were actually more women participants, or excuse me, they were tied, women and men at that time. And then later when my partner Kate Stetson argued the Venezuela case in November, we actually had for the first time a situation in which you had three women advocates, three women justices, and um, the rest uh, male uh, justices. So the women outnumbered the men. So that was, you know, it's some progress, but, but there's, uh, there's much to be done. Okay. Let me get into uh, the uh, travel ban cases. Um, you know that those will be argued on, on uh, October 10th. Um, I represent the state of Hawaii, so you know I'm going to basically. It's obviously a pending case. I'm going to basically stick to what is in the materials and the briefs. Um, there are amicus briefs on our side going in today. I expect about 90 amicus briefs um, uh, to come in, uh, and um, um, but I think you know the. <laughs> sure, you know, we got to make your life interesting. So, um, uh, um, but I, you know, but I expect it to be a, a pretty uh, interesting argument. So, obviously, I think this case starts with the president's statements on December 7th, 2015. Quote, Donald J. Trump is quoting for a calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. He refers to him in the third person as he says this. Um, and he then says, quote, I think Islam hates us. We can't allow people coming into this country who have this hatred of the United States and of the people that are not Muslim. And he later said, quote, we're having problems with the Muslims and we're having problems with Muslims coming into this country. And then on January 27th, he signed uh, the first executive order. Um, he signed it, um, and he read the title to the executive order, Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States. He looked up at the cameras and said, quote, we all know what that means. Um, and indeed, the courts did know what that meant. Um, and, uh, you know, the protests erupted at the airports and things like that. Um, and then challenged by the state of Washington, a variety of other states, of the ACLU, a variety of organizations challenged this as a violation of the Establishment Clause. Um, and then that was enjoined by the Ninth Circuit. Um, the president had said he was going to take it to the Supreme Court, but backed down and instead issued uh, two months later a revised executive order. It was supposed to come out, I think, on March 1st, but that happened to be the day that he was addressing Congress and it went well. And so they held it for a few days um, until March 6th, and then they announced the second one. And the second one is like the first. Um, they both ban, there's two basic pieces to this. One is they ban travel from now six countries. The original order had seven. Iraq is now not in um, the executive order. Um, 
And they say, you know, for 90 days, basically no one can come in unless possibly you have a waiver provision. But the line, the executive orders say there's no right to the waiver process. It doesn't confer any rights or benefits or things like that. Now, these six countries are overwhelmingly uh, Muslim, between 90 and 99 um, percent Muslim. And the second piece of this is to ban refugees from anywhere in the world. Um, and that's a 120-day ban on refugees. And um, uh, this is occurring at a time when the majority of refugees coming to the United States happen to be Muslim. And so that's what the state of Washington challenge was, was effectively that. And that's what the state of Hawaii filed within a few hours of the second executive order um, coming down. And the executive order itself tries to justify the national security grounds in a way that wasn't there in the first one. In the first one, you know, the lawyer for the government was asked by the Ninth Circuit, what is your evidence that says you need to do any of this stuff for national security? And the lawyer bumbled around and didn't really have an answer. So the new executive order has an answer. Um, the answer is, they say, that, um, uh, uh, that uh, two folks have come from Iraq and committed uh, acts of terror. Um, this is in the new executive order, the one that exempts Iraq, mind you. Um, and, uh, and then the other piece of evidence that they say is that there was a Somali child who came over as a refugee and later grew up and commits acts of terror. Um, the Somali child came over at the age of two um, and committed acts of terror. And by the way, the executive orders, the second one in the waiver provision, purports to exempt child refugees. Um, so that is the, uh, you know, the whopping national security case that the executive order puts out for, for the need for this. Um, now, uh, so the, it becomes challenged. It goes to the district court. And, you know, I, I'm personally a big believer in presidential power. I certainly written about it. I believe in the unitary executive. Um, you know, we had the privilege of representing the United States. Um, but I think the gravamen of this challenge is really twofold. Um, one, the constitutional arguments that, look, presidents should have wide latitude in times of national security and so on. But they can't use a... Um, they can't use a uh, kind of f formally neutral policy to guise racial an to, in the, to, to kind of cover up and cloak racial animus uh, or religious animus. Um, that that is something that is um, beyond what our constitution envisions. Our framers, after all, came here in part because they didn't like the idea of favored and disfavored religions, um, and that that is at the core of what the United States is about. Um, and, you know, Michael McConnell, uh, former judge, has written really powerful articles showing how, you know, the colonies basically used, uh, used religious tests for immigration as a way to try and make their citizenry uh, of a certain faith. And so it was a way to establish a religion by using the immigration power. And so that is what we are saying. There is a debate about whether or not you can use um, the president's prior campaign statements um, and, you know, regardless of whatever the views are, whether that should come in as part of the Establishment Clause test as to what a reasonable objective observer should do, our briefs make clear that what we're saying is it's what the president has done while he's been president and that he's rekindled effectively these earlier statements because he keeps on buying into them and referencing them in all sorts of ways, including, of course, his tweets. Um, and, you know, I do refer to the president as my co-counsel oftentimes because I do think that, you know, give the guy a Twitter account 
account and he'll, you know, often tell the truth. And, you know, the truth is one that's um, constitutionally damning. Um, there's a second piece to the litigation in terms of the merits challenge, and that has to do with uh, the statutory arguments. Um, and, you know, for uh, really since 1965, or maybe even earlier, 1952, and, you know, Congress has basically said, we are in the driver's seat. After all, you know, Article 1, Section 8 gives Congress, of course, the power to establish the naturalization laws. They are in the driver's seat, and they've really taken that mantle. And there's a very complicated, reticulated scheme for when presidents can say someone can be excluded and for what grounds. And one piece of that challenge is to say that, look, if you're a war criminal or something like that, um, or if there's an individual basis to determine that you are a suspected terrorist, absolutely, president should have that power that is statutorily given to him. But to ban an entire class of people on the idea that you are a national security threat, if that were adopted, it could effectively eviscerate everything in the United States Code and the complicated INA statute. So that's one set of challenges. And the other has to do with nationality discrimination. In 1965, Congress really rewrote the immigration code. And what it said was uh, it got rid of all those national quotas and all that stuff that we had, some of us had grown up with. And here's the language uh, of what it enacted, quote, no person shall receive any preference or priority or be discriminated against in the issuance of an immigrant visa because of the person's race, sex, nationality, place of birth, or place of residence. And so, you know, you don't have to get into these meta questions about is the president discriminating against Muslims or something like that. The statute flatly bans nationality-based discrimination, and that's what the travel ban is about. Not the refugee provision, which applies around the world, but the travel ban selects out certain countries and says no one from those countries can come in. So that's the basis of the, uh, of the challenge. The government has defended this by saying the president should have wide berth in the area of immigration uh, and the like, that a president is entitled to reweigh the national security threats that face the United States, and also has made a series um, uh, of arguments for why the case shouldn't be in court at all. You know, the president keeps saying, see you in court, and I want to be in court, but his Justice Department keeps saying, no, 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 this doesn't belong in court, and, you know, there's no standing, there's no justiciability, there's consular unreviewability doctrines, all sorts of kind of procedural arguments to try and keep the case out of court. Um, there's one last interesting quirk about the case, um, and then I'll just briefly discuss another case, um, and that is that um, uh, these these uh, travel bans expire. Um, you know, they expire at the end of September, and the refugee ban expire, expires in uh, mid to late October. And so one question in the case is, what happens then? Um, and so we're litigating that as well as part of these, um, uh, as part of the briefing, and I expect that to be a, a part of the argument too. Um, General Kelly yesterday uh, said in, uh, on, on some news show that they are looking at another travel ban, um, and you know I think even the terms of the executive orders themselves have contemplated future travel bans. So you know it looks like something that this administration wants to continue doing, um, but nonetheless that'll be something to keep your eye on. Um, as the litigation unfolds. Briefly, just want to mention a really important corporate case that's going to be argued, uh, first argument of the term, on October 2nd. And it's three cases, actually. It's Epic Systems versus Lewis, NLRB versus Murphy Oil, um, and as well, Ernst & Young versus a variety of plaintiffs. Um, and basically, this is about, you know, many of you in this room have signed these things. You become an employee 
of an organization. And you have to sign away your rights to a lawsuit. You agree to arbitration, to binding arbitration. Um, and you often agree to binding individual arbitration, not to, so it can't be a class-wide arbitration or something like that. And in the last administration, the NLRB took the position that that was an unfair labor practice. And that is because there's a provision in the NLRA which says, this is Section 7, quote, employees shall have the right to self-organization, to form, join, or assist labor organizations, to bargain collectively through representatives, and to engage in other concerted activities for the purpose of collective bargaining or other mutual aid or protection. So you've got a provision that says, look, employees should have the right to collectively do stuff. But then you've got this other provision in the Arbitration Act, the Federal Arbitration Act, and that says that arbitration provisions, quote, shall be valid, irrevocable, and enforceable, save upon such grounds as exist in law or in equity for the revocation of any contract. So it's like one of these classic legal disputes where you have two texts, they arguably clash, which one is going to control, or is there a way to read them so that they're consistent with one another? And as you can imagine, um, this is a very, very big employer versus employee um, split with you know, huge numbers of amicus briefs going in and a lot of passion on both sides. And so um, that will be argued on October 2nd. And just again, full disclosure, I represent a lot of the employers in, in those cases. So if you don't like my description, just understand I'm biased. So with that, I will turn it over. Why? Neil started talking before I could admonish him. But, uh... Okay. Just so our, for the benefit of our audience and the photographers, they can focus on you. <laughs> so I, too, can everybody hear all right? Yes, okay. So I, too, am going to talk just for a minute or two about the court prospectively in general and what we saw last term. Um, and then I'll, I'm going to talk about Masterpiece Cake Shop. Um, what everybody wants to know, of course, is now that we have a ninth justice, what are we going to see? And Neil gave you some of the statistics from the previous term. More are in my introduction in the Supreme Court Review. And more are in Ilya's introduction in the Charlotte Supreme Court Review. Using the same source, notably SCOTUS Block. SCOTUS Block, right. So if the newest justice, if he if, as he did, votes with the court's generally considered most conservative member uh, other than himself 100% of the time, it is a very short period of time. It's only a couple of months, but it does tell you something, and I suspect that uh, all of those liberals who thought perhaps there was some liberal heart beating somewhere in Neil Gorsuch's body, uh, by now they realize that is not likely to be true, although, you know, there may be some case here or there or some issue here or there, as there always are, on which he would agree with the, for want of a better expression, left side of the bench. Uh, I, I personally suspect there are going to be fewer of those with Justice Gorsuch than there were with Justice Scalia. Uh, as to his performance at oral argument, candidly, I would have to say I was kind of surprised it's a good trick when you can alienate Elena Kagan and Sam Alito on your first day of argument and in the very first case being argued. The case was uh, so boring that I'm not going to tell you what it was about. It, it was, was a my case. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
It was still so boring. It's all about the Merit Systems Protections Board and what court you have to go to for an appeal and when. And um, Justice Gorsuch kept saying repeatedly to counsel, well, that's very simple. It's in the text. It's very simple. It's in the text. I would have to say in all candor that the way he read the text was not necessarily the way others read the text. But regardless, Elena Kagan finally said, you know, if we start reading the text the way you say it is, and we disregard 40 years of precedent, we're going to have a very revolutionary interpretation of the law. And then you waited long enough, and soon Sam Alito is saying, this isn't simple. It's not just a matter of reading the text. There's, we have a long history of dealing with these kinds of issues. I don't know who writes these laws. I don't know who writes these regulations. They obviously are people who like to tear the wings off of flies. But <laughs> we're stuck with it, and we have interpreted it. And, and parentheses, he didn't quite say this. And not the way you're suggesting. So when you've managed to take off two people at opposite ends of the opposite ideological ends of the bench, um, you, you haven't had the greatest of starts. Now, some people have interpreted his first couple of weeks of argument. Uh, if you read the press reviews, both academic and journalistic, they are generally suggesting that the newest justice sounded somewhat arrogant. I think that's a little unfair. Uh, I, I think it's very unfair to reach any conclusions about human behavior uh, based on only a couple of weeks and basically six days of observation. And people often behave in ways that come out differently than they intended. You know, he may have been nervous. Um, he may have felt he wanted to speak more often and make sure that people knew he was there and that he didn't just sort of melt into the woodwork. I don't know, but I don't think you can draw any conclusions from his, from the first two weeks of argument other than the fact that they were about as successful as Antonin Scalia's were when he began asking a million questions and on, at a time when the bench was pretty silent and managed to tick off all of those members of the bench for different reasons. So. Um, in many of the cases this term, we have once again what is somewhat uh, facetiously been called a court of one, meaning that the court is evenly divided on many of the most contentious issues with four conservatives on one side and four liberals on the other for want of a better way of describing either side and Justice Kennedy providing the deciding vote. Um, my task is to talk about one of those cases, although I'm not at all sure they won't reach some sort of unanimity and an attempt to minimize the outcome in this case. Um, let me summarize the Masterpiece Cake Shop case quickly. Uh, in 2012, David Mullins and Charlie Craig went to the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood, Colorado to order a wedding cake for their upcoming wedding reception. Um, the owner of the shop, Jack Phillips, told them that he was perfectly willing to sell them a cake off the shelf, as it were, uh, but he would not create a cake for their wedding. That, in fact, he had a general policy based on his religious convictions against participating in same-sex marriages. The bridegrooms filed a discrimination claim with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, charging that Phillips had violated the state public accommodations law which bars discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. The commission ruled in their favor, 
as did the state Supreme Court, and Phillips appealed to the US Supreme Court, which after dithering on the case for months and relisting it for months and months and months, finally agreed in June that it would hear the case this term. It is, to say the least, a very tricky case. The cake maker, Mr. Phillips, has basically two arguments. First, that his right to freedom of religion was violated by the law. And second, that his First Amendment right to free expression, namely uh, that his right was violated, his right as a cake creator, his artistic expression was being unconstitutionally enlisted to support a practice that he disagrees with. On the other side, the gay couple, backed by civil rights groups, says in essence that Phillips' arguments are just a pretext for discrimination. They point to cases back in the 1960s involving similar small vendors, like the Piggy Park Barbecue in South Carolina, which refused to serve African Americans based on the owner's stated religious opposition to mixing races. In that case, too, the owner claimed a sort of artistic bent through his special barbecue recipe. In essence, these cases present, I think, two legal narratives. Mr. Phillips' lawyers portray him as a God-fearing cake artist who is perfectly willing to serve gay customers but unwilling to use his cake design art to further a cause he doesn't believe in and that indeed violates his religious beliefs. On the, on the other side, lawyers for the gay couple portray this case as the camel's nose in the tent, the case with the power to ensure that same-sex couples who just two years ago in a landmark Supreme Court opinion won the right to marry can be treated essentially as second-class citizens when they seek to obtain products and services for a wedding, not just cakes, but floral arrangements, photography services, even conceivably the buying of a ring um, from the, either the creator or the salesman of a ring or limousine services from individuals who are opposed to same-sex marriage. Um, just when the court, where the court will draw the line between a vendor's free expression or religious beliefs, and in this case, this case has devolved much more down to a case involving free expression rather than religious beliefs, largely because courts don't want to say what's a real religious belief and what's a pretext. So it's easier to focus on the free expression question. As Cato's brief did. <laughs> and and so, so it's very difficult to know. And if you look back to the public accommodations laws of the 1960s, they were, by and large, in that era, legislative laws. They were passed by Congress. And they did have an exception. I don't even know if the exception still exists for, um, uh, what do you call them? Um, no, they weren't consciences. They were just for people who had a, a who let people stay in their homes. In, uh, and so that was the exception. The borders. The border. The, the Mrs. O'Grady's border yeah. exception. I don't even know if that exists anymore, because I'm not sure there are any more borders anywhere. But there was a Mrs. O'Grady's border exception in the public accommodations law. <laughs> um, that might, might end up being a lot bigger ent um, enterprise than, than Mrs. O'Grady's uh, borders. Uh, the court, you know, this is a court that believes in, in free expression. All nine justices have, in many cases, been willing to vote and to write against 
very popular opinion in order to allow people to continue to express unpopular opinions. On the other hand, we have a history in this country of non-discrimination laws that apply to everybody and that have few, if any, exceptions. So how they're going to draw that line um, is going to be an extremely, uh, I think, interesting and difficult question for the court. And if it ends up that there are four justices on one side and four justices on the other, and Justice Kennedy is the one in the middle, the two things that we know that he potentially cares most about in, of his legacy and, and his constitutional beliefs is the First Amendment guarantee of free speech and free expression and his legacy as the author of every single opinion that the court has uh, handed down enforcing the rights of gays and lesbians from the earlier cases in the early 2000s to uh, same-sex marriage a couple of years ago. And so I have now used up five minutes and seven seconds, and I am going to go away. I predict that you'll announce that opinion and then promptly retire. Uh, well, Ilya, thank you, first of all, for inviting me to speak here today and uh, also to write the introduction to your Supreme Court review for next term. And congratulations to Cato on 40 years, as you say here, of advancing liberty. Uh, you've been in, I think, almost all the major battles in this town over 40 years on, on liberty issues. And you haven't won all of them, but you've certainly made your voice known and I think changed the terms of the debate. So you've been an incredibly influential uh, voice here in Washington. Um, I just would like briefly to talk about three cases and really more just to set the stage and get the ball rolling. I mean, we, we talked before this about how it'd be more fun and interactive for us all to uh, have a back and forth among ourselves and then with the audience on, on some of these more uh, high profile cases for next year. Uh, let me start with uh, Gill versus Whitford, which I think has the possibility of being one of the most important cases, not only of the term, but possibly of the decade, uh, it, 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 and really um, foreshadow a, a major realignment in American politics or a major change in, in the way our politics are conducted. Uh, as I think everybody knows, partisan gerrymandering is nothing new. Uh, Elbridge Gerry died in 1814, and so it's something that really has existed since the very first days of the Republic. Uh, the Supreme Court in two previous occasions, in 1986 in the Davis case and in 2004 in the Veith case, has confronted the issue whether partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional, either on equal protection or on, on free speech grounds, and came up in each of those cases with somewhat different uh, but equally inconclusive answers. Uh, there's really two parts to the question here. The first is a question of justiciability. Are these kind of uh, disputes uh, where, where uh, the, the claim is made that a legislature just went too far in injecting uh, partisan considerations into drawing legislative districts? Here we're talking about state legislative districts. Um, is that the kind of claim that the federal courts 
are really able and equipped to entertain? Are there, are there objective standards that they can use? Uh, the second, and not entirely unrelated by any means question, is assuming that the cases are justiciable, uh, what are the standards that are to be applied? Uh, and, and the court kind of flipped on those between uh, Davis in 86 and Vieth in 2004. Uh, a majority of the court held in Davis that they were justiciable, uh, but then failed to come up with any uh, standard uh, that commanded the support of a majority of the court. Uh, then in Vieth, uh, 20 years later, uh, and they rejected the, the, the partisan gerrymandering claim. In, in Vieth, they, uh, the, the court, uh, by a four-justice plurality written by Justice Scalia, said these kind of claims are not justiciable, and they would have overruled uh, Davis uh, to that extent. Uh, Justice Kennedy... Uh, interestingly, uh, or not, you know, not uncharacteristically cast the deciding vote, uh, saying that he would not rule out the possibility that these kind of claims could be justiciable under certain circumstances if an uh, objective criterion were identified. So he left the door open a crack. And that is essentially where we find ourselves today. Uh, this particular case arises out of the state of Wisconsin, which is, I think, uh, folks who follow politics probably know, is one of the most purple states in the country. Uh, and uh, notwithstanding that, in, in some of the more recent elections, uh, the Republicans who drew the uh, map following the 2010 elections, you know, there has to be redistricting every 10 years after a new census, they... Uh, drew the map in a way uh, it's claimed that that meant to favor Republican uh, candidates. And uh, the, the challengers point out that in 2012, Republicans received about 48 point something percent of the votes for state legislatures, but garnered something like uh, 60 seats out of the 99 seats. And yeah, or maybe 50-something, but, but definitely, you know, substantially out of proportion to the, 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 the amount of the vote cast. Uh, and similarly, in, in 20, um, I guess 2014, uh, they, uh, Republicans garnered slightly over half of the vote, maybe 52%, and also garnered something like 60% of the seats. So uh, the, the, the challengers here, uh, who are members of the, or are Democratic voters, uh, brought a suit saying, that this is excessive, uh, that this is partisan gerrymandering and it violates their constitutional rights. These kind of cases are somewhat unusually uh, go to a three-judge district court. It's not your typical uh, you know, district court, court of appeals, Supreme Court. They go to a three-judge district court in the first instance, and then they go by direct right of appeal to the Supreme Court. It's not part of their certiorari docket. And so in this case, a divided panel of the, the district court in Wisconsin with one Seventh Circuit judge and two district judges sitting on it, uh, upheld the, the uh, challenge and said that this uh, redistricting plan is unconstitutional. Uh, and they said, um, the, 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 the plaintiffs here said, and the court accepted, the fact that uh, a, a so-called uh, or an objective mechanism had, in fact, been found. And they pointed to a, a 2015 uh, uh, law review article they came up with something called the efficiency gap. And basically, that's a way of taking wasted votes, uh, which are votes basically 
that are in excess of what a successful candidate needed to win, and as well, um, votes um, that went to the losing candidate that could have gone to a winning candidate elsewhere, and came up with a, a, um, a way of putting those together mathematically, and they say that uh, an efficiency gap of 7% or more is uh, presumptively unconstitutional. I may not be doing uh, justice uh, to, to the exact uh, operation of this, but, but suffice it to say that they now are, are coming in and saying, essentially, Justice Kennedy, we have found this shiny holy grail that you said was lacking the last time. Here it is. It's the efficiency gap. Uh, so, you know, I think it's it, if, in fact, the court were to uh, accept this and were to start to say that uh, federal courts can get into the business of saying when a partisan gerrymander goes too far, uh, that could portend massive changes uh, in, in our electoral system. I think those changes will be welcome for some, probably unwelcome for others. But I think one thing to keep in mind is that somebody still has to draw the map. I think a lot, it's easy to decry uh, partisan gerrymandering, but I think one also has to consider what is the role of the courts then? And really, are, are, you know, how great is the danger that courts get sucked into the vortex of politics that kind of inevitably will accompany uh, the, the need to draw district lines? So I think there's you know, a lot of very far-reaching policy uh, decisions and, and, and uh, questions that really go to the nature of, of courts in a democratic society presented by the case. Uh, the second case I just wanted to, to touch on briefly and, and, and get out there is the uh, Carpenter versus United States case. This is a criminal case where uh, the government sought information from phone companies uh, about cell phone tower basically pings with uh, an, an individual's cell phone. Uh, the way cell phones work and this is all on information and belief, I should say. I, I don't claim any particular uh, insight here. But uh, apparently, even while our phone you know, is in our pocket uh, or in our handbag, uh, it is communicating all the time with nearby towers. Uh, and there's all these apps in the background. And so there are ways, apparently, to track your movements pretty much uh, constantly by where, you know, which cell phone towers um, pick up the information. Um, the government under a 1986 statute does not need to get a warrant to get this kind of information from telecom providers. Uh, and, and so they were suspicious of a guy uh, in terms of a series of bank robberies. And they, uh, under this lower standard, um, which is not, you know, particularized cause. It's it's just a much lower standard. That they got a judge to basically order the the, the phone companies to turn over the cell phone data, uh, which they did, and uh, this gentleman Carpenter was uh, convicted. And so the issue, in a sense, boils down to whether or not uh, the the um, this kind of information is the kind of information it, 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 that within the fourth the, the terms of the Fourth Amendment is a search or seizure that requires a warrant uh, before the government uh, obtains it. Uh, and you know, I know 
Cato has has uh, you know taken a position in the case, and and uh, it's something that's really interested a lot of a lot of people. It's one of these very interesting areas that may actually provide an opportunity to reformulate Fourth Amendment jurisprudence generally, kind of in the digital age, which is actually what Cato has asked the court to do. It also presents something called the third party doctrine, which has to do with um, whether or not there can be a search or seizure when the government, when the information is actually provided by the defendant, not directly to the government, but, but to a third party to, to whom the government, from whom the government gets it. Um, so that, that doctrine is kind of uh, definitely very much at play uh, or on the chopping block, depending on how you're looking at it. Uh, the, the final case that I, I just wanted to touch on briefly is called Christie versus NCAA. Uh, it's the case that uh, Ilya mentioned about sports betting. And I think it's kind of a classic example of a case that how you look at it really depends on which legal pigeonhole you put, on, you put it in. Uh, it's, uh, th th there's a statute, and, and I, I will try not to be boring, but I think to understand the case, you just have to hear the, the words of the statute. It's, it's actually called, who knew the, the government was in, into this area, but it's called PASPA, Professional and Amateur Sports Protection. And uh, it was enacted in the early 90s, I think 92, and it makes it, and I'm quoting here, it shall be unlawful for a governmental entity to sponsor, operate, advertise, promote, license, and this is the critical words, or authorized by law, and then it goes on to say, um, you know, betting or wagering on competitive uh, sports activities, and then creates a civil action uh, to enforce that uh, prohibition either by the United States or, quote, by a professional sports organization or amateur sports organization whose competitive game is alleged to be the basis of such violation. So. New Jersey, uh, notwithstanding this, this, what looks to be a pretty straightforward um, ban, went ahead and authorized sports betting in New Jersey. The NCAA sued. Uh, in defense of its law, New Jersey said, the feds clearly have the right to regulate sports betting, but they have to regulate it as the feds, wearing their hat as the feds. And from a political accountability uh, uh, perspective, what they can't do is tell us, New Jersey, what we can or cannot do with our own law. It may be that uh, our law is preempted by federal law, uh, but we should be entitled to pass our laws as the state of New Jersey. And they're saying basically, by making it illegal to authorize um, a particular thing by law, the federal government is commandeering the state lawmaking process itself. And New Jersey actually tried not only to authorize this, but then also to repeal its pro-existing prohibition on sports gambling. And in both cases, the Third Circuit said, uh, forget about it. yeah, yes, forget about it. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's <laughs> good. You cut right to the chase, that that was, um, that that was preempted. So I think it, just to kind of wrap up there, it's the question is, do you look at this as kind of an ordinary preemption case where the federal government is just saying what state law can and cannot do? Or do you really look at it as a commandeering case where the federal government is imposing its own policy preferences, not directly, again, which everybody says the federal government uh, can do, but really through the device of telling New Jersey how it can and cannot legislate. And the two sides are kind of, you know, one says it's in one category, just a straightforward preemption clause. The other says, no, this is really commandeering. So 
that's the issue in, in the Christie case. So I think with that, maybe we can all kind of, uh, Ilya, why don't you take it from here? Yeah, Chris Christie versus NCAA, it's kind of like the Iran-Iraq war. You want both sides to lose, right? Um, before we open it up to the audience, I, I do want to have some discussion on the panel. Now, when we were planning this, you know, all of the panelists insisted that they only wanted to take like five minutes because they really want to discuss, not have these set pieces. And yet here we are using up all but a couple minutes. Thank you, Nina, for not being the one that didn't use up all of the time. But anyway, um, so on, on Gorsuch, on kind of the general themes look, looking ahead, um, uh, Nina, you said that he was uh, no liberal. I mean, I think everyone can probably agree with that. But you also said that he would be even less uh, as a liberal, if you will, uh, than Scalia on, on certain areas. And I'm puzzled by that because, f uh, for example, Scalia famously on constitutional criminal procedure cases, Sixth Amendment, Fourth Amendment, other things, there would often be these kind of uh, principled versus pragmatic, left and right versus the middle sort of coalitions. Uh, and uh, based on his previous writings, Gorsuch seemed to slot well into those kind of heterodox 5-4 splits as well. I don't know, which sorts of cases are you looking at to say that he's going to be, I don't know, less with the liberals than, than Scalia was? Well, I do think that Scalia had a particular kind of libertarian view on the Fourth Amendment, for example, and, on, and in also the area of sentencing. And even in the area of national security, people forget that he wrote the most liberal opinion in the very first uh, Guantanamo case, uh, which actually didn't involve Guantanamo, involved, involved the guy who had who'd been, uh, was an American citizen, but had been uh, put in, in the Navy uh, brig and not allowed access to anybody, including a lawyer. Uh, and in fact, a lawyer named Frank Dunham from the public defenders, Federal Public Defender Service read about it and decided to bring a case because he thought it was unconstitutional. And that was the case in which Justice O'Connor wrote for the court that the president doesn't have a blank check to write in these kinds of cases. But Scalia wrote uh, separately to say that if you're an American citizen, you have certain rights, period. And the government had violated those rights. So he didn't like that sort of half and half measure. So you're asking me what specifically, how specifically? You know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. And people also change over time. You, they do evolve in what they think. Uh, sometimes they haven't thought at all about, if you've been on the DC circuit, you haven't had to think about death penalty cases, for example. So I remember having lunch with Scalia maybe a year into his, um, into being justice, and I said, and he said, you know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of stuff here that I haven't thought about, like the 11th Amendment. I haven't had 11th Amendment cases to think about. Well, by the time he got done thinking about it, it was pretty clear what he thought, but he didn't know in the beginning. And so I, far be it for me to stick people with labels for something they haven't even thought about yet. So in okay. some ways, it's an unfair question. So go to somebody else. Neil, Chris? <laughs> I'd say a couple of things. I mean, one is I think it's, um, you know, measuring any new justice by Justice Scalia's long and varied track record is going to be a tough measurement for any mortal, frankly. I mean, Justice Scalia was a singular talent in justice. 
um, that uh, and was eclectic. I mean, he wasn't always consistent, as I think the Eleventh Amendment cases show better than any. He was not just a textualist, for example. Um, but nonetheless, there was a kind of um, free spirit slash ability to just kind of think uh, outside of the standard paradigms that you saw. Um, now, look, you can take the 16 cases that Judge that Justice Gorsuch just said and said, oh, that obviously says something. I just think, you know, having argued a couple of those cases in that April sitting and watching Chris argue the third, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of like really hot button stuff in the April <laughs> sitting, I got to say. Um, so I don't really... in my case. That's the new Marbury versus Madison. But that's so far. So far, we're two to one on boredom. <laughs> so, you know. I'm not sure what the, you know, and it's always hard at the beginning, um, you know, and I certainly, you know, was a, and, and still am a strong supporter of Justice Gorsuch's uh, nomination, now confirmation uh, on the court, but I get a lot of criticism, people saying, oh, there's 16 cases, you know, you didn't vote, you know, out of lockstep. I mean, that was the same thing a bunch of people said about the Chief Justice um, after, in 2006, seven and eight, um, but I think we saw some pretty votes out of lockstep, um, much to Cato's d dismay, um, later on. Um, and so it's early yet. So let's see. Well, if he, uh, if Gorsuch triangulates uh, kind of between Scalia and Thomas into a more engaged libertarian direction, that would be certainly a departure that I would welcome. Um, you can comment on that, Chris, or I want to start a new topic about the, uh, the travel ban that, that, that Neil uh, mentioned. Uh, and what about, are they even going to get to these uh, weighty merits issues, either the statutory or the religious discrimination issues, uh, or... Uh, are they going to try to dispose of it on, on mootness, standing, or who knows what other procedural block they might uh, put into place? That was basically the question that I was going to ask Neil, which is, I, I guess I'm a little bit surprised that, and maybe, you know, surprised may be the wrong word, but, but I would have thought that given that the court itself added a question about mootness at the time that it granted these cases, I would have thought the administration would have been very tempted to say, look, the whole reason we put these things in place, the whole initial justification, as I understand it, was, look, we haven't had a very careful review of these procedures, and these they raise potentially very serious issues going to the security of the American people. So let's just put a temporary hold on this while we review our procedures. And I guess... I would have thought that it was to, would be to their advantage to say, okay, now we have completed our thorough review. It's been vetted by all the, the relevant agencies. From my review of the briefing, it doesn't look like the government is trying to push the mootness button as hard as I would have thought it would have tried. Why do you think that is? Yeah, no, that's, I think that's right. Um, I'm not going to speculate as to what the court will do, um, but I will talk about the issues here. Um, you know, the, the rationale for the travel ban was really twofold. Number one, there are those threats, those people that I identified earlier, the Iraqi, the Somalis, and people like that. And then number two, they need to free up resources to study the problem, and that's why they need a 90-day temporary pause. Now, we're like way past the initial 90-day period. The initial 90-day period was supposed to end, I think, in April. Um, and they've been kind of kept on, they want fresh 90 clocks every, so, you know, every, uh, you know, every, at every iteration afterwards. I do think, as Chris suggests, it makes the, the rationale for the whole travel ban, you know, quite weak. And then the question is, and, you know, I sat in that chair, why wouldn't 
the solicitor general want to then say, you know, look, this is just done. We got something else now. I mean, and, you know, there are some problems with that, the voluntary cessation doctrine among others. So they've got these precedents out there that they have to be concerned with in the fourth and ninth circuit. And if they just voluntarily give up on their, you know, program, they can't just nullify those precedents. So one reason may be, you know, they've got to litigate this in order to remove those precedents. But I do think there's probably something else going on, um, you know, there were some news reports last week about the cake case and the Solicitor General's fight with the White House. And, you know, it wouldn't shock me to learn that there's some similar um, problems in distance going on between some people who are more ideologically pure at the White House and then the Solicitor General, which traditionally, at least, has been pretty much independent of those types of, um, uh, of ideological concerns. But don't you think, I mean, Farb, you guys actually litigate this stuff, and I don't. And But it did, does seem to me that the court has been sending signal after signal that we gave you, a, we gave you an outline, and you really ought to be able to live with it. And we, don't, <laughs> we would love not to have to decide this. And at least that's my impression. So perhaps I'm wrong. It would hardly be the first time. But it is my impression. And and I and I if that's the case, I mean, people who are successful solicitors general, and that would in, I would include Jeffrey Wall in that group because he's had Law to do school class, right? Who would ha he's been had having to do this until Noel Francisco is confirmed, and he's done. He's really danced a pretty elegant dance a lot of the time, but it does seem to me that. Maybe I am reading this wrong. Do you think I'm? I'm. Do you think the court is saying, "Oh, we just we we're really hot to try to decide these"? Well, the I can't imagine here? John Roberts wants to rule any way, any which way on the merits, either 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 uh, reevaluating the uh, national security prerogative of the president or being seen as uh, supporting a, a Trumpian agenda. Right. So I'm not going to get into this particular case, but I'll say just generally taking a step back, you know, if national security cases are always tough for the court. I mean, you know, there's uh, on the, you know, you've got the legacy of Korematsu after all, you know, that they have to worry about. And, um, uh, and you know, and it's really hard if you're the executive in a time of national security threats to lose your case at the Supreme Court if you assert national security. I mean, if you go back over American history before the Gitmo cases, you can only find one example uh, of this, um, Youngstown in 1952 in the 200-year-plus during a time of armed conflict. It's kind of like failing a class at Yale. You really got to try if you're the president. <laughs> um, and yet President Trump has already managed to do so in his first 150 days by two different circuit courts. Um, you know, So I think that also has to be part of the backdrop that comes to the Supreme Court. Anybody else want to comment on either Masterpiece or the cases that, that Chris discussed before we open it to the audience? I have one question for Chris. Having gone to the, there was a, the University of Chicago today had a, some of their similar, we have these dog and pony shows a lot. And, um, and the suggestion was made that there is language in the, the New Jersey, that if New Jersey were to win, that there is language in their argument that would help sanctuary cities because it would, it would boost the idea of independence by, the, by states and cities 
to do their own thing. What do you think of that notion? I think sometimes law, like politics, makes for strange bedfellows. And I think certainly these kind of federalism-based arguments, which is very much what New Jersey is making here, in the age of uh, Trump and a Republican administration, are going to be very attractive to blue states and cities. And I think, you know, one of the somewhat healthy things about, you know, turnover in uh, power in Washington is that I think each side uh, uh, discovers the genius of federalism every eight or 12 years. <laughs> and I think we may see that. Uh, I, I, I think you're-, you're, you're Or the you're other way around, the genius of a strong executive. Yes. And, you know, I think that this wouldn't be the first time, you know, people are on, find themselves suddenly on different sides of, of the issues. I mean, if you, uh, you know, last year, I think, if not the term before, the question was whether President Obama's, you know, DACA program was even permissible and now the argument is being made that it's basically required uh, that the Trump can't repeal that. Uh, the very and people have switched sides on standing in terms of who can challenge these kind of things. I mean, you know, I, I think if if you want to start looking for changes in views on legal issues since November 2016, I think you'll find uh, it's a target-rich environment. I, I like the confluence of the, the DACA-DAPA and then the travel ban because DACA-DAPA to me is great policy that's not legal as a matter of executive power. And the travel ban is bad policy that is legal, but anyway. Um, so people always ask, you know, how, if your theory, your constitutional theory is so nice and elegant that it you know, aligns completely with all of your policy views, it's something fishy. So now I can very contemporaneously raise uh, those two things. All right, let's go to questions. And actually, since we don't have that much time, I'm going to take two questions at a time, and then we'll engage in some more talk. So let's go there and right there. There and right there. Why are you both walking down the same aisle? <laughs> right? OK, while, while she asks, why don't you get, go over to this person here? I, uh, I'm interested in knowing what you all think about the DC Circuit case from last term regarding the CFPB and the constitutionality of an independent agency with a single head appointed by the president. I can't remember the name of the case, but I bet you all have heard of it. Uh, my name is Kayla Gammon. And I'd like to know both what you think the court is likely to do about this and what the right answer is. My name is Francis Schur. And this uh, question is for Neil. Has anyone ever taken uh, statistics on both amicus brief and do those are they ever read by the justices and that they affect their outcomes? All right, so two very different questions, but let's address both of them. The, uh, the PHH case, CFPB. I'm happy to take the lead on that. I mean, I, that, that, that is a just fantastic case for those of us who consider ourselves separation of powers mavens. We live for cases like that. They don't come along all that often. Uh, you know, it, it really goes back uh, in time to the Tenure of Office Act when, after the Civil War, the Republicans in, in Congress wanted to really limit uh, President Andrew Johnson's um, removal powers. And um, 
they, they passed the Tenure of Office Act and then impeached him when he, or tried to impeach him, or impeached him and didn't convict him, remove him from office uh, when he violated the act. Uh, when Chief Justice Taft, when, when President Taft became Chief Justice, he basically said that was all unconstitutional. The president has these very, very expansive removal powers in Marbury, uh, in the, the Myers case. And then nine years later, in a, in a very short little opinion by the anti-New Deal justices called Humphrey's executor, they, uh, the court said that there could be limitations on the president's removal power for multi-member uh, multi bodies. I can't remember which of the multi-member bodies that was issued there. In this case, Judge Kavanaugh on the DC Circuit really tried to limit Humphrey's executor, distinguish it on the ground that that's a multi-member body, not a single member body. Um, you know, he doesn't have the authority to overrule Humphrey's executor as a DC Circuit judge, but I actually think that Humphrey's executor may be on the chopping block if that case reaches the Supreme Court. And with respect to your amicus question, I'd love to hear uh, Nina and Chris's views on this as well. But, um, but you know, there's no study done that's going to tell you what every justice does. Their practices vary hugely, and there's anecdotal evidence. I mean, I clerk for Justice Breyer, who is very fond of referring to amicus briefs at oral argument and say, what do you think about this argument or that? Um, you know, sometimes they're really helpful, and sometimes they're just written because whatever organization is just trying to get their name out there and say, me too. And, you know, obviously trying get rid of as many of those as you can. The one place, though, in which I think there is some study and data about is do amicus briefs at the cert stage help a case get granted? And there, the numbers are pretty striking, that if even one amicus brief is filed, the chances of cert going up are four times. And if two or more are filed, the chances go up 10 times. Now, you know, there's some you know, there's some tricky causality questions there because there may be that, you know, a case with amicus briefs may just have already have better legs anyway. So, you know, it's, it's hard to totally disentangle that. But in general, my view is uh, if you're an organization like Cato or something, you've got limited dollars, not like Cato, um, that the way to do that is to really spend your money on the cert stage. I, I, it's always stunning to me both the amount of ink and pages, et cetera, that are wasted in amicus briefs and how incredibly influential they can be when they say something different than what the merits briefs say or they come from a group of people who have real credibility. So uh, if you have, for example, in, the, in affirmative action and you have um, military officers filing a brief that says, we really, because we, had, we didn't have a, a well-integrated officer corps in Vietnam, uh, racially, it really did hurt us as a military institution. And the, the brief that Carter Phillips, or more precisely, Virginia, Virginia wrote, um, about in, in that case was incredibly influential. Similarly, the, it, along the path to gay marriage was the California Prop 8 case, in which Ted Olson argued very passionately and spent only about a a paragraph on the question of standing. And the court booted the case on, on the question of standing. And it was probably very fortunate for those who were advocating uh, gay marriage because it wasn't quite yet time. And it gave them time. And they needed that year or two of time. And, and that was an amicus brief by Walter Dellinger. Well, by Walter Dellinger. 
Exactly. And there, you know, we could go on. There are lots of others. And you, when you're a reporter and you see these, uh, uh, you know, the, these vast quantities of briefs, sometimes you just look and see who wrote them. Because if it's somebody whose work you respect, you'll take a quick look. And if it's the same old, same old, you just move on. But every once in a while, there was a brief filed in the ACA case that I think didn't get any credit at all, but I found really helpful in my understanding of it. it was filed by historians of healthcare, law, healthcare and healthcare law. And it was just a fascinating brief. I learned an enormous amount from it, and none of that was in any other brief. All right, there's a hand here, and then up there. So we'll take two again, up there. Stan Lycoke, U.S. EPA. In contrasting between Justice Scalia and Justice Gorsuch, in the Chevron area, isn't there an apparent difference? Uh, Justice Scalia, fairly open, and Justice Gorsuch, at least when he was on the circuit court, speaking out against? Devin Watkins, uh, I want to ask about Janice given uh, California Teachers Association, Freddie's Free California Teachers Association split 4-4 last term, and Lucia, where the DC circuit split 5-5 on the constitutionality of appointment of ALJs. Line, I mentioned the charging of agency fees to non-union members in the public sector, Janice, and uh, another structural challenge this time to the SEC. Who wants to take uh, any of those questions? Chevron or those two pipeline cases? Well, on Chevron, I will say yes. Justice then Judge Gorsuch wrote some stuff that's pretty critical, um, and, um, and but so too Justice Scalia was moving toward criticism of Chevron um, as well, and certainly our deference and things like that. So he was moving, I think, in a in a direction that was you know um, different than where he started. So it's a little hard to know. I mean, again, as I think Nina said, and I think it's really important. What a judge does on the lower court is pretty different when you're up there. Um, and, um, you know, Justice Gorsuch has not shown any shyness about his willingness to, you know, to break with his colleagues, at least at oral argument, and writing some of these separate opinions. But nonetheless, you know, to really cut back on Chevron, that's a big, big, big deal. And I suspect if it happens, it's not going to happen right away. I, I agree entirely with that assessment. I, you know, I, I think on both scores, I, I think... Um, Justice Scalia was such a champion of Chevron, but I think in the, uh, you know, over the majority of his tenure, but I think he was starting to have some real second thoughts about it, actually, in the last few years. Um, I mean, he kind of came of age during the 70s when the D.C. Circuit was, um, you know, routinely kind of uh, uh, second, you know, just, just making up the law and, and ignoring the agencies, and I think, you know, that that was kind of, he was reacting against that and thinking you have to give deference because otherwise the judges are making it up. I think, you know, he started to, I think, appreciate maybe more the dark side of, of, of Chevron and, and from a democratic point of view, giving too much deference to these unelected bureaucrats. Uh, and I think this is an area to the, that we can really expect some very interesting um, discussions on the court over the next few years. I think this could be a real area of fundamental doctrinal change in the, in the relatively near future. Um, the, on, on Lucia, by the way, I think that's a hugely important uh, case. I, I, I think 
um, you know, there's likely to be a, uh, that looks like a very likely grant. I mean, you, you never know in this business, but there's circuit splits and it just even, I, I believe it even deepened uh, another circuit weighed in just the other day. So uh, it's about uh, the, the appointment of inferior officers. Uh, I think that that one, again, looks looks like a grant. And on the union fees case, I mean, that, you know, that, that case has been up there, what, you know, three times at least, and it seems to have fizzled every time. I mean, I don't know if there's a saying the fourth time's a charm, but, but you know, who knows, or, or, or a curse depending on one, one's perspective. Uh, but, you know, I, I suspect sooner or later, whether it's this case or, or a case in the near future, the court will get back to that issue having just uh, punted on it last year. Question up there. On the Chevron bid and, and Gorsuch, um, I'm reminded of, uh, during his confirmation hearing, Senator Feinstein uh, pushed back on his seeming, uh, his pushback on, on Chevron. And it, was, it just seemed like a, an ironic moment because what she was implying was that she wanted Scott Pruitt, for example, to have more power. And so these things, Chevron itself was meant to be a, a Reagan-era pushback on out-of-control judges, that they should just defer to Reagan's agencies, right? So this uh, isn't, uh, shouldn't be a, a left-right kind of issue. Hi, my name's Lily Blanton. Um, I'm with Whistleblower Aid, and my question is about the travel ban cases, and I think it's probably more for Chris and Nina than Neil. You probably can't comment, but maybe you could, because um, you mentioned that the only case pre-Gitmo where the court limited the executive power was Youngstown, which all of us who went to law school know um, when the president does something that Congress has already legislated on, he loses, or at least in theory. So you pointed out that Congress has already passed the statute that says you can't do this nationality based on nationality. And then you also mentioned Korematsu. Do you guys think that the court is kind of not playing up the mootness card because they want this to overshadow that? Because they have the shadow of Korematsu over them? And that if they rule in the way that I would like them to rule, that this could kind of cast a better shadow going forward about just generally discriminating against people based on their nationality in times of war. If I could hop in first, I mean, I, you know, Neil may disagree with me on this. I suspect he, he would, but you know, you're right in a sense. Youngstown does provide a nice template for trying to address. Uh, exercises of presidential power, and it says, you know, presidential power is at its acme when, um, you know, Congress hasn't acted, and then the, 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 the power is committed to the president. If, it, you know, but it's at its its nadir when Congress has acted, and the president wants to do something inconsistent. Well, here I, I think the president would say Congress has actually affirmatively in the legislation given me this power so that from a Youngstown point of view, I'm actually acting completely consistent with what the discretion Congress has given me to exclude certain classes of, of aliens. And, and um, you know, the, 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 the key statute says, whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, he may by proclamation and for such period as he shall deem necessary suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants or impose on the entry of aliens any restrictions he may deem to be appropriate. So it's hard to read that language as being super restrictive and taking away the, saying that, you know, the, 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 this is something that Congress basically wanted to keep for itself. 
Um, you know, I think there's a question of how you square different statutes, but I think the president, with, with some reason, thinks, what's, what's up here? Like, I'm, I'm doing exactly what I'm authorized to do, not only by my inherent authority under the Constitution, but in, I, 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 under the, the statutory immigration regime that Congress has put in place. There's also the issue of, um, uh, or a, an argument about the different rules applying to issuance of visas versus entry, which is one of the points of contention. Anyway, uh, let's uh, give a big round of applause to our whole panel.